adequate leadership.
Welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it's Friday, October 4th, 2019. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm very tired, and I'm going to do my best to bring an informative show for all you listeners out there. So thanks again so much for tuning in. Quite a week. We'll be getting to some news. Start off with some music by The Muffs. Kim Shattuck passed away recently, and also heard that Diane Carroll passed away this morning. <sighs> <sighs> Taking a lot of deep breaths and sighs. 
and I will most likely be doing that throughout the program as well as some groans uh, as I go through the, the news as the news is depressing and also it's important to recognize what's happening. We do have a guest coming in at 1230, so very excited about that. And, oh, whew. So yes, we are broadcasting from Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. We're on Ohlone land, and there's a lot of resources that folks can check out to learn more about the land that we're on. One is if you go to ramatush.com, and that's R-A-M-A-T, excuse me, R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.com. You can also go to conspireforchange.org forward slash resources forward slash decolonization. There's a lot of great reading materials and resources there as well, uh, regardless of where you are. And there's also the Shimmy Land Tax, and that's for folks particularly in the East Bay, although anyone can donate. And if it's if you type in S-H-U-U-M-I Land Tax, you'll be brought to the Sikorite Land Trust page, and you can read more about that as well. <sighs> yes, so oftentimes I begin the show with a rant or a little bit about what, what I'm thinking about or what's going on. And... I was thinking earlier about how there's so much misinformation and being brought up in this country provides a lot of misinformation and regardless of the families one may or may not grow up in and the areas uh, one may grow up in, there's still so much misinformation in the media and often in schools and in, and there's so much that isn't taught or biased versions of what is taught and behaviors that are in a way celebrated and I'm thinking about how often qualities such as kindness and generosity and authenticity and honesty are sometimes not only overlooked but punished in in this country and how difficult it is as to i complain a lot about what's happening in the world and systems that are in place and other people's behavior and also recognizing the only thing i can change is my own behavior and wanting to make strides with that and also recognizing how difficult it can be coming against what is possible and how to unlearn a lot of behaviors. And looking around and seeing so many things that are either that feel backwards or are unnecessary or could be easily corrected if resources were, were dispersed differently. And especially in San Francisco with the with their wealth disparity is ridiculous that there are thousands of people without homes and at the same time there are billionaires who live in the same city and with billionaires they have so much money that they could give away millions and still have millions like they could give away so much and still have they'll, there's more than enough money that they would ever use in their entire lifetime and to see that that difference of folks who don't have their basic needs met and how to <sighs> what will it take to get folks to, to share and recognizing, again, I can't necessarily force anyone to do anything. I can only contribute and can do what I'm able to do. And at the same time, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, it feels like it's never enough and there's so much more that I could be doing. And also recognizing then there are the folks who have more than enough and how do we shift their perspective to get them to recognize that everything is connected so that's something that 
goes on in my mind every every day certainly and i think about my own actions and there's so much work to do and recognizing that one will make mistakes and wanting to correct them next time and undo patterns and how there's this illusion of democracy here in this country and this idea that oh we're we're free to do whatever we want but not really and there's so many different products we can buy however only a few different corporations own those products so only a few corporations will be profiting off these and sure there are plenty of places to spend money that's if you have money however how many choices are there as to how to be in the world how to appear and how to act that can be very limited as to what's deemed acceptable by dominant culture and just how disturbing it is that based on how you look or other people's perceptions of you is based on how you will be treated and what you will be given access to So I'm thinking about the again the land we're on and as we talk more about climate change and what can be done for the environment and also recognizing that <sighs> so much of how what was here originally and how folks took care indigenous folks took care of the land and wanting to find a way to go back to that <sighs> yet these corporations are polluting the military-industrial complex, the U.S. military is the largest polluter in the world, and these are businesses, and as long as people are making money, they don't care who they hurt. They don't think about the long-term effects. And how do we stop that, and how do we integrate these specific issues into the climate change discussion? Because someone can be against climate change, and as long as you're still pro-war, that's not going to solve anything. Not just the human life, but the life on Earth, nature. So I've been thinking about that. Again, uh, perhaps not the most cheerful thoughts, however. I do want to be solution-oriented, even if I can be a pessimist at times, and also recognizing that even if some of us don't see the world that we want to live in, we can plant seeds, we can work to create it, we can speak ideas aloud, have conversations with others try to envision it so the very first step is to envision the world that we want to live in and it might seem radically different than the, than the world we're in right now however have to try somehow <sighs> and I did want to begin with a story about fighting climate change. And one way is that uh, there's a story that was on NPR and there's an audio version of it, so I will, I will play that. And this is a tribe gives personhood to Klamath River. And this came out on September 29th. A Native American tribe has granted personhood to a river in Northern California making it the first known river in North America to have the same legal rights as a human, 
at least under tribal law. The York tribe, based near the southern border of Oregon, conferred the new status on the Klamath River. For years, water management systems and climate change have led to lower water flows in the Klamath and fewer salmon, one of the York's main food sources. We're joined now by York Tribe General Counsel Amy Cordalis, who is also a tribal member. Welcome to the program. Ayakui, thank you for having me. What does the status of personhood mean for a river? What it means is it gives the right to the river to exist, to flourish, and to naturally evolve, and a right to a stable climate free from human-caused climate change impacts. What that means is that anytime the river is hurt, for example, there's a toxic pollutant that is gets into the water of the river, we could then bring a cause of action against that polluter to protect the river. So would the York tribe be able to take legal action against polluters of the river further upstream beyond their territory? Well, that gets into some jurisdictional mm -hmm. issues, but we certainly would make the argument. What prompted this? Why did they decide to take this action? One, the Yurok people have always lived along the banks of the Klamath River. And in our creation story, um, the creator told us that as long as we lived in a balance with the natural world, we would never want for anything. And we lived that way for a very long time. Of course, you know, after the invasion in the 1800s um, and development occurred outside of our control, that balance has been thrown off. Um, I understand that the situation with the salmon, though, has really prompted a lot of concern. Can you explain a little bit about what's going on and how it's been going this year? The salmon runs are the lowest they've ever been. Even this year, it was anticipated that the returning salmon runs were going to be strong, but they never showed up. We don't know where they are. Uh, we have been doing all we can to protect the river and you know, working within existing legal frameworks, and it's not enough. We should note that this is not the first body of water to be granted personhood. Toledo, Ohio voters approved a referendum to grant personhood for Lake Erie in February, although that is being challenged. Is this an idea that's gaining traction beyond Native Americans? Absolutely. Um, the New Zealand government granted rights of a river and really what I think this is, is a reflection of a change of societal values. So we are in a climate crisis and we need new tools to respond to that crisis. And in this country right now, corporations have rights as a person. And that's because historically our country valued commerce. And so I think it's a logical next step in this era of climate change to give the same kind of legal recognition to the natural environment and to nature. That's Amy Cordalis. She's the general counsel for the Yurok tribe in Northern California. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So that was from NPR, and you can find that at npr.org. And that was posted on September 29th. There's a lot of information as per usual, this is just a drop in the bucket of the information that I have heard and I'm able to get to on the show, and I'm weaning myself off Facebook. It's having a tough time. We do post news articles there if you go to facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. I've also been sharing a lot more information on Twitter, so you can follow me on Twitter at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R, -E and for many of the stories that I have intended, I am intending to get to today but might not, you can follow me on Twitter and read some news stories from there. 
there's a lot, again, a lot to get to. Uh, George Gascon, the DA in San Francisco, has stepped down, even though there's going to be an election in November, which is kind of ugh. And the idea is that we want to be sure that us voters, folks who uh, vote here in San Francisco, have a say in who the next DA should be. If you're interested in listening to last week's program, please do, because we had uh, Chesa Boudin on the show. And Chesa talked a bit about his campaign and his history. And we will be replaying that episode on October 25th. So, folks, if you'd like to take an action item, you can tweet London Breed, who's the mayor of San Francisco, and let her know that the voters we deserve to be able to vote for the next DA here in San Francisco. And you're welcome to. I've posted it on Twitter, so you can retweet that, create your own tweet, contact London Breed's office, however you are able to. Thanks for that. Uh, Again, lots of news. I'm unsure of how much time we're going to have to get to everything. So I did want to announce a few upcoming events. Uh, The Center for Political Education is a great organization here in the Bay Area, and there's a lot of events that are happening in October. So for folks who are local and or will be local in October, I wanted to share some events that people can check out. I've learned so much from the panels that they have presented, so I really encourage folks, if you'd like to learn more about any of these upcoming events, please do check them out and or spread the word to folks who may be able to attend as well. So the first uh, event here on the list is Defend the Venezuela Embassy Protectors. This is Tuesday, October 15th. Uh, They will be sharing the location details soon. But again, if you check out the Center for Political Education, they'll have more information there. And it says, join CPE and Bayern USA in welcoming Kevin... Zeis, Margaret Flower, and David Paul on their tour of the Bay Area. All three are facing prison terms and $100,000 fines on the trumped-up charge of, quote-unquote, interfering with government operations based on their 34-day defense of the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C. Zeis, Flower, and Paul will be joined in conversation by Venezuelan activist Carolina Morales and Rhonda Romero, chairperson of Bayan, and that's B-A-Y-A-N, USA. So that's one event that's happening, again, on Tuesday, October 15th. Next, on Tuesday, October 22nd, at 7 p.m., Reclaiming Hong Kong at the Eric Quezada Center for Culture and Politics, which is at 518 Valencia Street in San Francisco. Earlier this year, the people of Hong Kong rose in mass resistance to the proposed China extradition bill. Protests continue to escalate despite increasingly brutal crackdowns by the government. While the city edges toward martial law, the protests have gained attention and support around the world. Join CPE, Chinese Progressive Association, and the Banya uh, Project, and that's B-A-U-H-I-N-I-A Project, for a discussion featuring organizers involved in the uprisings and Bay Area-based organizers. The speakers will discuss what caused and continues to fuel the uprisings and what the future of this organizing may be from Hong Kong to the Bay. And this will be featuring Kaiyui Samuel Chen, uh, Wawa, Jose Eng, and Adrian Lung. And for more information, including accessibility information, they have a link if you go to, I'm going to click on the site here and share the link that has more information as it loads. And there's a Facebook invite that's called Reclaiming Hong Kong. So if you type that in, you'll find more information there. And also, it's to note that there are like anti-government protests that have also been happening in Haiti and Iraq 
so really around the world those and i think in indonesia as well there's just many many protests that are happening around the world and i really appreciate that the center for political education puts on these panel discussions because i feel the media either doesn't cover these events at all or if it does it's from a very pro-state pro-government pro-police uh pro imperialist perspective so it can be really difficult to understand what's at stake why people are actually fighting and what they're fighting for and to bring in folks who have lived there and really understand and have studied what's happening is so important and crucial and also just to understand how that corresponds to what's happening here in the united states as well next up they have the decade of fire Center for Political Education and Casa Justa, Just Cause, invite you to a special screening of Decade of Fire on Sunday, October 27th from 12.30 to 2.30 p.m. at the New Parkway Theater, which is at 474 24th Street in Oakland. Director Vivian Vasquez Irizari and Casa Justa, Just Cause organizer uh, Kenya Perez will join us for a post-screening discussion. They have tickets available, and they have a link on the website. No one will be turned away for lack of funds. Decade of Fire tells the story of how the South Bronx came under attack in the 1970s by banks, the real estate industry, and gentrifying government policies. It also shows how entire neighborhoods organize themselves to fight back and rebuild their homes. Against the backdrop of racist austerity measures, redlining practices and policies of quote-unquote urban renewal this gripping film investigates the real history behind the fires that rocked the south bronx for a decade displacing about a quarter of a million people from their homes with painstaking research and compelling testimonies from longtime community members decade of fire rejects dominant narratives that place the blame for the fires on the black and brown communities of the south bronx and shows the power that is activated when neighbors unite and organize to save their communities and they also have some more information on Excel, excuse me, accessibility information at the link as well. So again, if you go to the Center for Political Education, which is, let me just bring up the website here. Oh, they have a, a Facebook invite. If you check that out, they will, you'll find information that will be helpful. Great. All right. It is 1227. And going to look at some of the next stories that we can get to in time. Oh. Yeah. Also taking a, a deep breath here because, yes, there is quite a lot. And there is one more. Oh, goodness. There's, there's a lot to get to. So I think what I'm going to do next is get to a story from Democracy Now!, and that's just going to talk about folks who commit nonviolent crimes and how they are punished as opposed to some folks who actually do commit violent crimes, such as the Dallas police officer who was the first <sighs> Dallas police officer to be convicted of murder since the 1970s. And she was given a 10-year sentence for murder, while there are folks who are given far more time for either self-defense or for other victimless crimes. So this is from Democracy Now!, and this is from November 15th, 2013. I'm just going to play a little bit from this. A study by the American Civil Liberties Union has found that more than 3,200 people nationwide are serving life terms without parole for nonviolent offenses. Of those prisoners, 80% are behind bars for drug-related crimes. 65% are African-American, 18% are white, and 16% are Latino. 
evidence of what the ACLU calls extreme racial disparities. The crimes that led to life sentences include stealing gas from a truck, shoplifting, possessing a crack pipe, facilitating a $10 sale of marijuana, and attempting to cash a stolen check. 63% of those serving life without parole for these nonviolent offenses are in federal prisons. Most were sentenced under mandatory minimum laws. The ACLU says keeping nonviolent offenders behind bars for life is costing taxpayers an additional $1.8 billion. And Amit will be joined by the author of the study. But first, this is a clip from a video that features family members of some of the more than 600 prisoners it profiles. Everything he did was to hurt himself, not others. And it went from, from one year sentence to two years sentence to natural life. My dad will never get out for something so little, natural life. But stealing a $150 jacket. And that $150 jacket got him life in prison. Here in Louisiana, they used that uh, habitual offender law, three strikes, you automatically get natural life. It's like giving him a death sentence because there's no life. No life for a man with his children or his parents or anybody else once they're in there. Judge should have the discretion not to give the life sentence. I mean, that's extreme. You tell that to anybody, that, uh, uh, that's a little bit too much. That's almost just to be the point that that's not what the forefathers envisioned, even with the Constitution. That's extreme. That's cruel and unusual punishment to me. He's a good person, my dad. I mean, he's always, like I said, he's always been there for me, my sister and brother. He's always done his best until he started abusing the drugs. And a lot of times with Patrick with the drugs, it came down to not being able to find work. Life sentence is no way to deal with a... Uh, a drug addiction. My son wasn't a menace to society. He would give his shirt off his back. And being so tenderhearted in a place like that, it just doesn't fit. It's changed him that way, because I notice he is getting a little colder. I find that he's not believing and he's not keeping his faith as much. He's not, like, he's like, I'm about ready to give up on this. Oh, it's been hard. I go down there and see him. I can't hardly stand and leave him, but I know I have to go. It'd be hard. It'd be hard. To tell him what I ate for Thanksgiving, and he couldn't eat it. You know, it's hard. Just little things like that. And my birthday coming up. And those are days I break. But if this person can go back and be a productive citizen and not commit crimes again, these nonviolent crimes, then why are we keeping him here spending all this money? Because maybe I've done my job, so he should have a parole hearing. There's too many families that are suffering out here. Give him a second chance. He's 54 years old now. I'm looking for things to change. Because these boys are just getting wasted away in these prisons for no reason. That's a clip from a video that accompanies the ACLU's new report, A Living Death, Life Without Parole for Nonviolent Offenses. For more, we're joined by its author, Jennifer Turner, human rights researcher with the American Civil Liberties Union. Welcome to Democracy Now! I mean, it is just astounding. A man—the story we just heard, another story, a man walks out of a store with a coat slung over his shoulder, $159, gets life in prison without parole. Absolutely. These 
these sentences are grotesquely out of proportion of the crimes that they're seeking to punish. And we found that 3,278 people are serving life without the possibility of parole for nonviolent crimes. But these numbers actually underrepresent the true state of extreme sentencing in this country. Those numbers don't account for those who will die in prison because of sentences such as 350 years for a drug sale. Um, it also doesn't account for the many millions of lives ruined by excessive sentencing in this country as well. And especially the impact of federal mandatory um, uh, minimum sentences. Could you talk about that and the efforts to try to roll back uh, some of those uh, some of those laws? Yeah, what we found was that over 80 percent of these sentences were mandatory, both in the federal system and in the states. Um, they're the direct consequence of laws passed over the 40-year war on drugs and tough on crime policies that included mandatory minimum sentencing laws, habitual offender laws in the states, and they tie judges' hands. And in case after case after case that are reviewed, the judge said from the bench, outraged, um, would say, I, I oppose the sentence as a citizen, as a taxpayer, as a judge. I disagree with the sentence in this case, but my hands are tied. And one judge said, when sentencing one man to life without parole for selling tiny quantities of crack over a period of just a couple of weeks, he said, this is a travesty. It's just silly, but I have no choice. What if a judge said no? The judges can't say no. In fact, I looked at cases where the judges tried to say no, where the judge tried to find a legal loophole, where prosecutors appealed repeatedly. One man was sentenced to zero time in prison by a Louisiana judge for uh, threatening a cop while handcuffed in the back of a police cruiser. He was drunk, threatened him, was sentenced uh, initially to no time. The, the prosecutor appealed, the sentence increased to 10 years. Prosecutor appealed again. On the third appeal, it was increased to life without parole as a mandatory sentence because of his priors uh, dating back as much as 20 years earlier. Let's go to another case. Another person profiled in your report, in the ACLU reporter, Sharonda Jones. She was sentenced to life for conspiracy to distribute crack cocaine when she was a 32-year-old mother with a 9-year-old daughter, no prior arrests. No drugs were found on her. But her supposed co-conspirators testified against her in exchange for reduced sentences. In this clip from the film The War on Drugs, she talks about being separated from her daughter. My sister bring her to visit, and every time she come, it's hard. I see her like once a month, and to see her grow from a little bitty baby to almost a grown woman, and it's just like, God, my dream is to just show up at her school. <laughs> I mean, I know they gave me life, but I can't imagine not being at her graduation high school graduation. I just can't imagine me not being there. Sharonda Jones. Jennifer, tell us more about her case. Well, Sharonda was caught up in a massive drug sweep in a majority white town in Texas. Over 100 people were arrested, all of whom were black. Um, Chuck Norris participated in some of the arrests. Uh, Sharonda had no information to trade for uh, a, lenient, a more lenient sentence, and the judge was required to sentence her to life without parole, objected to the sentence, but uh, so he had, had no choice. nothing on her. But they had nothing but one wiretap. Uh, what happened was a couple had been arrested on drug charges and began cooperating with the feds as confidential informants. And from there, uh, started implicating others in the community. 
They called Sharonda and said, hey, do you know where we can get some drugs? The wiretap caught Sharonda saying, let me see what I can do. That was the extent of the evidence against her, with the exception of testimony from these confidential informants and other co-conspirators. They never found any drugs on her. Uh, there were no even video surveillance of her with drugs. But she was sentenced to life without parole as a single mother. Her daughter, Clonisha, has been separated her for many, many, many years. And Sharonda maintains a very close relationship with her daughter. She carefully apportions the 300 minutes she's allowed to use per month for non-legal calls to call her daughter 10 minutes each day. When I talked to Sharonda on the phone, she was like, I gotta go, I can't use all my minutes, I need to speak with my daughter. And uh, Sharonda, unfortunately, has no relief available. Her sentence is final, like those of everyone else we were profiling of. They have really no chance of relief unless President Obama, in Sharonda's case, because it's a federal case or in the states where the governors use their executive clemency powers to reduce their sentence. Welcome back to the Weekly Review. I'm joined here by Kevin Seaman. Kevin, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Roman. Yes, and you have a show coming up called Femme Masculine. It's hashtag Femme Masculine. Oh, excuse me, sorry. Don't hashtag. forget that hashtag. We're in a digital age, Roman. Right, hashtag Femme Masculine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so please tell us about the show. Yeah, sure. So this is the first solo show that I've done. I've done a ton of shows here in the Bay Area over the last uh, 15 years that I've lived here, and this is my first solo show. It's debuting down at Brava Theater. We had our opening night last night. It was a ton of fun. Um, the show is really looking at the intersection of gender and sexuality amongst gay men and really looking at that intersection. It's kind of a parable for 
uh, toxic masculinity and um, just kind of like living your best life in this digital age where it's easy to slip into a bunch of bullshit. Yes, <laughs> that is for sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's so I really appreciate queer artists who put their work out there. It's so I think having visibility is so important. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Um, when I think, too, you know, th- for me, this show is really, it was such a labor of love, and it was many years in the making um, because it was really changing my performance style for something that was more character-based, more silly, mm-hmm. um, and comedy to something that was a little bit more authentic and vulnerable, which was very difficult for me as a performer. Yeah, yeah. What was the process like, if you'd like to talk about that? Um, yeah, so um, I, I feel very fortunate to be supported by a huge team mm-hmm. of amazing local artists, and even some folks that are working remotely um, throughout the whole thing. Uh, three years ago, I started working with John Calden, um, who wrote the script. Uh, we wrote the script together. Uh, and that process was really just like talking about uh, stories of my life and... Um, uh, just experiences that I had that like brought me up to this point. And over the years, the, the script really shifted and changed. Um, and I think y- not only is it this kind of like autobiographic piece, but I think the other piece of it too was really about um, taking kind of a queer lens to gay culture mm-hmm. um, and looking at a lot of gay male culture and thinking about that in context of uh, gender studies, of queer studies, and really thinking about how we're looking at Um, some ideas that kind of get uplifted as like uh, underground scenes, but then are kind of still conforming to and supporting patriarchy. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, very much so. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think a bit about some of the dating apps, for instance. Oh, yeah. One place. Absolutely. So, yeah, we actually have um, one of my other collaborators, Jolene Ingo, has created a dating app specifically (gasps) for the show. Oh, wow. And so a lot of the action on the show deals with um, looking at this app. It's called The Man. Uh And uh, it's it's a community for men. Um, But really, it's just like we go through we go through having to um, fill out like a profile together and take a picture and Mm -hmm. um, go through kind of some, you know, the app isn't an actual of the app available it's specifically made for the show really is a stand-in for toxic masculinity thinking about how we conform to standards of um specifically like hyper masculine gay uh male gaze Mm -hmm. and really thinking about how we change ourselves to fit in somewhere yes um and then what happens like when we start putting that conformity on other people that might be coming in later so really think about aging too and like being a younger um gay boy and really finding myself in a lot of internet websites and um in the show we talk about like the aol mfrem chat rooms we talk about Mm -hmm. gay.com and just kind of my own evolution in places but then also just really thinking about how, how after we learn how to conform to spaces so that we can fit in how are we forcing others to have to conform by not being our authentic selves yeah wow that's that's there's a lot right there it's the comedy <laughs> and it's so important to talk about where yeah. i was in the, in the beginning of the show i was speaking about just growing up in this country and how regardless of sometimes where we're raised or who we're raised by yeah. it's still difficult not to take on some problematic behaviors and oh, yeah, attitudes absolutely. that's kind of either forced on us by mainstream culture yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's um, there's a really great video that we put together that um, 
uh, Jay Mason Buck, who's up in Seattle, um, created that is about essentially the process of hazing that all mm. young boys go through just by virtue of watching media, listening to their peers, and like being a young boy in the world. That there's so much conformity that that happens in order for boys to survive that mm-hmm. you have to like fit into mm. it. Um, and there's there's this really amazing video that um, Mason created that kind of details that and just seeing it from all angles of TV and news and movies and then how that gets played out in social structures as well. Wow. Oh. Oh, I, I do sigh a lot on this. So. That's all right. Yeah, sigh I'm away, Roman. Taking it, I'm taking it in. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, yeah. wow. Oh. But I mean, the, I think the flip side of that too, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about the like the conformity for sexuality, but then yeah. I think we reach a point in the show where that completely reverses and that's where my drag persona, LOL McPherson comes out mm-hmm. and really is kind of the antithesis to all of this hyper-masculinity is the idea of yeah. hyper-femininity. Yes. Um, but then I think also trying to like take a look at some of drag culture about like appropriation from different communities, um, the way that a lot of gay men when they do drag and mm-hmm. anyone can do drag I, I truly believe that mm-hmm. drag performance is for everybody um, and it comes out with all these different kinds of expression but um, really thinking about how a lot of gay men when they're doing performing drag as drag queens that uh, a lot of self-deprecating behavior that can mm. just seem self-referential actually isn't true because at the end of the day, you go home and you wash off your makeup, you wash yes. off this feminine presence, and you're back to being, you know, a male presenting person. And so, what does it mean that you're like self-deprecating someone that you are, but then you're also yes. not? Yeah. Wow. Um, and yeah, I think drag can be really problematic sometimes sure. if you're not thinking about how you're making the joke. I think just like any any type of comedy or any type right. of um, social parody or performance, that if you're not intentional in what you're doing, you can very easily uh, be extremely offensive. Definitely. And if your point is to be offensive, then you better know how and why you're being offensive. Right. And who you're offending. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that a lot of skirts by because there's not certain people in the room, and I think we have to hold ourselves to a higher um accountability yes yeah i'm thinking also just in terms of with you know being trans and like how the yeah. relation between trans and drag and then mm-hmm. how it intersects sometimes mm-hmm. and and not yeah a previous show that i did um with uh micah sigourney vivian forevermore honey mahogany and dosa de leche we mm-hmm. did a show that was called daughters of a riot mm-hmm. where we looked at a lot of san francisco history mm-hmm. and specifically around the compton's cafeteria riot yes and um how the tenderloin and really in the 60s was this area that you, you know there weren't definitions or, or delineations between um between queerness, gayness, trans identity, like it mm-hmm. was all just kind of bundled up all together. And it's yes. been, um, and so I think in those times it, it was, it, I mean, it was not as good for people because we've come so far with, yes. with LGBTQ rights, but it was more of, it seemed more of a togetherness, at least from like my lens of like sure. not having experienced it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think now as our communities continue to gain momentum and visibility that we have to be more in supportive of each other. We right. have to be in dialogue with each other. We have to really be listening to each other. Yes. Um, a lot of people refer to like LGBTQ as a community and it's so not true. There's mm-hmm. so many tiny little factions and yes. um, micro communities within that. Yes, definitely. And folks have different experiences too based Absolutely. on identities. So it's also crucial to, to talk about that. Yeah. 
Yeah. I know a lot of trans folks that are super into drag that mm-hmm. like found their, their identity through drag and then a lot of other people that think it's total misogyny. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those perspectives or all perspectives are mm-hmm. totally valid. Right, right. Um, um, and I think that, you know, as a drag performer, I'll, I'll be the person to say like not all drag, but I'm like, I think there is a lot of it. Um, I think look at Hollow Eve on this season of Dragula. Have you seen the Boulet Brothers Dragula? No, I haven't. It's awesome. It's it's kind of like Drag Race, but it's um, darker and weirder and messier. Uh, and Hollow Eve is um, a contestant on, on this year's. And uh, they, during one makeup session, called out a person for using the term fishy mm-hmm. um, to refer to their drag. And it yeah. was this really great conversation where um, Hollow stated why it was not okay and why. Yeah. Yes. that term should not be used really yeah. thinking about uh this like i don't know derogatory term for um female genitalia not female cis female genitalia nope i'll say i was just like a type of genitalia yes yeah. a type of genitalia <laughs> thank you yeah. um and, but like that it was so well yeah. received as well by by the other person who's like huh i hadn't thought about that yeah and just you know the, this idea that like by getting new information where you feel something's being taken away from you Mm -hmm. to me i've always been the type of person that like if you're giving me feedback of something that's hurting you or something i'm saying that makes you uncomfortable like i wouldn't want to continue that right and it might be something if it's something that's very close to my heart i have to like really think about it um to me i'm like i use the word fag all the time it's a word that i feel like i own Mm -hmm. um um, or even like the word queer, a lot of older yeah. generations do not like that word. Right, and right. So I'll tend to skirt away from yeah, it with yeah. other people, but it's also something that's a piece of my identity and who yes. I am and that I won't strike from my vocabulary in a way that other words yes. I've tried to weed out a little bit more. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I also think about with younger folks coming out, coming up and learn how language does change and evolve oh, yeah. over time. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious as to how that will shift yeah as we as we go on and what words that we're using now will someone maybe listen to this episode years from now and be like oh my gosh i can't believe they said that or (laughs) you know who knows yeah we did um we did a version of the show in new york in january and there was a young person there probably like 18 or 19 who is non-binary and like after the show they raised their hand and like do we even need this show like this conflict of like do we need and i was Mm -hmm. just like i am i am so happy yeah that you have yet to experience like people that that are like um, not okay with your non-binary like that like have no like it is so wonderful that mm-hmm. we have younger generations that are growing up in a time where there's so much um, so many resources and services and so much available to support you but it's like uh, just a little bit ago and also right now too like the types of things that are happening to a lot of trans folks non-binary yes. folks to queer folks that like um, I feel very fortunate to be in the bubble of San Francisco and mm-hmm. I know how hard it can be for people that are living in areas that are not super accepting of LGBTQ identities. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I was thinking about, I was thinking about, I've got a lot of different like bubbles popping uh-huh. up over my head about where to go <laughs> in the conversation. And one thing would be just in terms of processing what mm-hmm. we have been, you know, I, I feel like even recently I've been processing a few things that happened to me when I was like coming out as trans when, yeah like over 10 years ago that I'm still like memories of things that I experienced versus what things have happened to folks now. Not to compare and contrast because everyone's experience is different, et yeah. cetera, et cetera. However, there is that need to kind of, I wasn't in a place to necessarily speak about what happened to me. Mm-hmm. And then later on when things feel a little bit safer, perhaps, or yeah. there's more stability then one can present it. So I'm also just curious as to with maybe I'm just, 
speaking more a stream of consciousness and less of a question, this, this idea of when we can actually start speaking about our own experiences, even if it's after the fact and maybe things have changed in a way right. since then. So in a way it's like creating art is telling a story about maybe processing what has happened in the past. So in a way it might seem at like anachronistic. Mm -hmm. However, it is, it does take time to really shape and share what we've been through. Yeah, it absolutely <sighs> does. Um, and I think, you know, as, as part of this show, I think one of the most critical supports for me through this show has been uh, mental health services that mm. I have received at Queer Life Space, which mm -hmm. is an amazing uh, queer mental health community practice which sliding, with sliding scale mm -hmm. um, services. And I think when I started this show, I was like, I don't know, I just feel like uncomfortable with my gender identity, so I'm mm -hmm. going to just start exploring it and write a show about it. And as I got deeper into it, the more that I realized that like there was just so much there that I had suppressed or forgotten yes. about or like yeah. dissociated with. And it was really this process of creating this show while I was like uh, getting services through Queer Life Space that were like really hand in hand to actually help me get to the point of like self-acceptance and a lot of like relaxation around my gender fluidity and really be okay with that. Yeah. Um, but it, it's to me, so I think synthesizing my life into a show mm -hmm. at the same time of plugging all of these different types of resources and ideas into it. One major influence of the show is bell hooks, mm -hmm. uh, the will to change men, masculinity and love, mm -hmm. which is a book that my therapist at career life space oh. is like, you're going to need to read this book and then we're going to need to talk through it while you read it. And it really forced me to change my idea about the construct of masculinity and more so my own relationship with it as well. Yeah. <sighs> something else I um I also wanted to talk about was mm -hmm. just um you mentioned like in San Francisco we live in a bubble yeah. which is true and also there still are San Francisco does have like a ways to go in terms oh, of Oh yeah, absolutely. And I was hoping you'd be able to talk about a bit about like with the rideshare apps uh -huh. and how discrimination oh, that yeah, folks sure. had and you're really instrumental in helping the dialogue around uh, homophobia and transphobia in terms yeah. of folks not being able to access ride shares right. in the Bay Area. Yeah, so in July 2017, I was outside the stud in full mm -hmm. drag at 3 o'clock in the morning um, and called for a lift that refused to pick me up. Mm -hmm. um, and since that time, I've been working with the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, National mm -hmm. Center for Lesbian Rights, mm -hmm. um, to really meet with Lyft and try to come to an agreement about how we can help create more visibility for LGBTQ people, mm -hmm. specifically trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. Um, and I think the biggest um, agreement that we reached was mm -hmm. making sure that we're that we're going to have a um, report discrimination button within the app. Mm -hmm. That when that incident happened to me, I had to click through to four different screens and then Ugh. just write an email about what had happened. And to me, that that if to not have the ability to report discrimination for a company mm -hmm. that I know values. Um, diverse perspectives and wants to really make sure they're providing a welcome environment for everyone. Mm -hmm. It seemed like a huge oversight. And yes. so I'm just, I'm really excited that we're going to be working with them mm -hmm. um, to create that for everyone. Yeah. Um, I just saw an article today too, that had mentioned that um, African American black and LGBTQ folks often get uh, denied rides or skipped over by all ride share companies. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Uh, so yeah. just, I think, to, to be able to report that. I think it's also sometimes so hard that, like, how can you, you know, if somebody just comes up and cancels on you, right. you don't specifically know the reason. Right, but right. But I remember I was... Um, I was I went with a friend to Steamworks and when uh-huh. we and we were getting a ride coming back and he put the location of Steamworks yes. and the car was coming and then it canceled and then yes. another car was coming and it canceled. Wow. And so I think a lot of times that search function when you know the place that you're at might yes. have some effect on someone that like a lot of people do choose not to pick us up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's similar to what was happening with, you know, taxis too. Yeah, like absolutely. it's not it's not a new problem. No. no. Oh. Yeah, well. But um, yeah, I you know I I just saw it as an opportunity that mm-hmm. like I, okay this not great thing happened to yeah. me how can I just make the best of it to make mm-hmm. sure that this um, try to reduce the amount of times this could happen to other people right right I appreciate that and that's an important reminder for all the listeners out there that <laughs> we you know we can make change and yeah take action yeah and i think it's it's you just have to take whatever changes and right in front of you yeah. it's like you know it, not everything is going to be big and sweeping and even the agreement that we reached with lyft it it wasn't the big sweeping change we want but it right. was progress mm-hmm. and i think that that's so critical to like it's not always going to be revolution sometimes it has to be an incremental change right and that doesn't mean that it's any less important absolutely and it will make it easier for more folks down the line eventually we'll get that revolution oh yeah oh yes <laughs> many of us are just on board yes <laughs> on yes. board waiting for that <laughs> yeah so um so hashtag femmasculine yeah opened the, last night last night they had a yes. great show yes and it's happening again tonight uh-huh. and the fifth as well as next the October 10th, 11th, and 12th. Yeah, yes. Yeah, we're running for two weeks down at mm-hmm. Bravo Theater Center. That's down at 24th and York. Mm-hmm. And we are in their brand new storefront cabaret space. Ooh. Just super cute. Yet. It's right out on the street. Oh, it's, excellent. Um, space that they purchased about a decade ago. Okay. Um, and then their executive director, Stacey Powers, has really been... Um, getting the organization of the last 10 years on really solid financial footing and able to build out that new space that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's really great to be in that space. Um, Margot Gomez had the first show in there. Oh, yeah. So I just, I feel so honored to be in the same space with folks like her, uh, Tina D'Elia, yeah. um, Idris Cooper, other other artists that are in residence at Brava. Oh yeah, they yeah. always, yeah. such great shows there and I'm so grateful that the, the space exists. Me too. Yeah, but... Um, the show starts at 8 o'clock, mm-hmm. uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Well, I guess Friday, Saturday this week. And then Thursday, mm-hmm. Friday, Saturday next week. If you want to come, I think the special family showing where I'm pretty sure, like, my mom and sister are flying in. Oh. And then I think my dad and stepmom might also be coming to the same show. So hopefully that will be a good one. I don't know. <laughs> but um, that's happening next Friday. Okay. And, um, yeah, it's a super fun show. It's just about 75 minutes. Um, I spent a lot of time on my phone. You're allowed.